been a lot of uh, good uh, effort in the practice. It does seem like there's a lot of fatigue in the room. It might seem like, oh yeah, there they are, just those meditators running away from the world, sitting on their butt up there at Dhammagiri. It's challenging, it's not so easy. But it feels like important, important uh, work, it is work as practice. Tanisha and I have had a chance to check in with everybody over the past uh, two days. And yesterday, there's really a... Uh, we feel very pleased to have you all here, to have this uh, auspicious uh, gathering. Though, you know, one is tired and restless and resistant and at times it might uh, not seem so uh, what's so auspicious about that. But as uh, Tanisha, you know, mentioned today that uh, when we don't take the time to cultivate that's the word the Buddha used for meditate, cultivate, bhavana. It has the meaning of uh, to bring into being. Similar to cultivate as if you plant seeds and then bring into being a, a garden, what you're choosing to grow. garden, if there's uh, something that one doesn't want, some kind of weeds or things like that, one can, one can pull them up, but they can become compost, not wasted. It's a question of uh, just uh, considering what, what do I want to grow in this garden. And then uh, the, the kind of cultivation is uh, we're bringing forth these uh, beautiful qualities, important qualities, life-saving qualities, wisdom, compassion, patience, restraint, rather than just reacting to this first quoting Ajahn Chah that when we don't uh, cultivate this capacity to be restrained, wisely restrained, consciously restrained, and we can just react. In the news every day, we we encounter these reactions that are so uh, destructive to ourselves, to our others, to the planet. My own mind has been in a few places uh, today, uh, primarily in uh, uh, 
uh, checking back into uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, the last um, pretty much 24 hours. My, my uh, father hasn't, he's, he's not moving, can't speak, uh, can open his eyes. Uh, he's, uh, he's uh, you know, my brothers are there, they're really loving hospice people. So he really seems to be in the last day or days. And uh, but just reflecting on uh, what a good life he's led, 98 years old. So uh, someone said uh, recently that uh, some people's lives are like sonnets. They, they're, they're short, but they can have power. But others are like uh, epics. And this woman said, yeah, your father's life is an epic. 98, 98 years old. And uh, right before we left, he was encouraging us because he, he was prepared to go, ready to go. You know, in a way, a bit impatient. Uh, oh, okay, I'm ready now, so I guess I should just lift off. <laughs> the process of dying is doesn't always go exactly the way we plan, but he was uh, ready, and uh, but he was uh, really insistent that uh, Tanisha and I, you know, he says, no, no, my life is used up. Now you must uh, go back to to Dharmagiri, to your work, and to uh, you know, to do good things was so pleased in his last uh, weeks to, uh, he said, that gives me something to try to stay alive for, is, is our book coming out. So he was so thrilled to get it and sent 35 copies <laughs> <laughs> out to family, friends. He was so, so uh, happy for us and pleased. And of course he had, uh, you know, read it over the years. And um, a, a lot of the last, a lot of many months in the last few years, I've spent uh, helping my father in his various stages of debilitation. Throughout it, his mind has been very clear, and his uh, heart has been getting sweeter and sweeter, and he's become very generous. But the body, more and more debilitated. Just these last, pretty much uh, after we uh, left, he quickly started to go down. Just this last day or so, then he's you know not talking, and, and um, but he was very very um, uh, pleased for us, and uh, appreciative of the work of what we're doing. When I first. Uh, went off to Thailand, however. My mother and father weren't so pleased. I had uh, been awarded a Rhodes Scholarship, which in America was a big deal. Um, I had uh, gone to Princeton University and graduated with honors and um, won this Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford and uh, was, had been accepted into medical schools, but delayed that so that I could go to Oxford and then return and then be, become a doctor. So they were so 
rejoicing and happy for, for, for my accomplishment, accomplishments. And then uh, when I was uh, uh, a few years into my Oxford studies and I uh, informed my parents that I'd you know, heard about this great master in Thailand and I was just going to go get, get a leave of absence for a few years and, but I, you know, I would return and f finish my thesis and then go be a doctor. But when I talked about going off to Thailand, my parents were really horrified, really dismayed. This was in the mid-70s when, you know, there was all kind of cults and things and, and you know, Buddhism, what's that? Like, I'm pretty sure in those days I didn't even know Buddhism had an H in it. You know. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, when they... If you look on the globe and you look at Chattanooga, Tennessee and, and Northeast Thailand, it literally looks like you're trying to find the point on the globe farthest away. <laughs> and so my parents were upset and upset. And they said, oh, what did we do wrong? That, you know, he's, he's, he has to go to the farthest place. Um, and then at first they were even uh, worried that maybe I had been abducted by a cult. It wasn't long after that that there was that whole big uh, Jonestown suicide, mass suicide. They were all going to go off to, I think, some higher realm or something. So anyway, I, my uh, parents, mother and father, both so deeply <coughs> dedicated to their children's rural welfare, they promptly decided to fly to Thailand <coughs> and come see in this monastery. And uh, that was a big deal because... Uh, I knew in terms of my mother's relationships to small creatures that you couldn't really see, that she wasn't really keen to go to a jungle. <laughs> and we lived in a forest with cobras and army ants and all kind of uh, poisonous adders, mosquitoes. And it was a part of the world that had just been through this devastating Vietnam War and then the whole catastrophe and uh, bombing and stuff in Cambodia and then the rumors, there were rumors at that time about the killing fields in Cambodia. And our monastery was right in the northeast of Thailand, right near the Mekong River, right near the Laos and Cambodia border. So that was not... <laughs> thrilling. And I arrived in Thailand on the day of, the, of a revolution, the, 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 the most bloody revolution in their history, the day I arrived. And I wrote back and said, don't worry. <laughs> anyway, they, they uh, flew out and, um, to Thailand. And it turned out, uh, I think largely also because of the extraordinary compassion and graciousness of Ajahn Chah. That's the picture he gave to, it's a copy of the picture he gave to my mother and father. 
Italian at the time, masters have solemn portraits, but Ajahn Chah was had a great sense of humor, and very very playful, and um, it turned out that that uh, trip became a uh, a treasured trip to the Orient. They talked about it for years, <laughs> but it uh, you know first they were quite worried and went up to the monastery. And saw the monks and Ajahn Chah had a lot of time for them, and, uh, which was very, very beautiful. And he, he did something, at the time I was in white, I, I was a, uh, a postulant. And in Thailand, for the most part, families are, are rejoice and celebrate if they're son. Uh, women have less opportunities. This is a whole other situation. But if their son uh, goes off to be a monk for a while, because uh, that's considered a part of maturing and growing up. And yet so many of the Westerners' parents were, were feeling like, you know, they just lost their children. So when uh, Ajahn Chah, when, when my parents came and he was talking to them, he thought, well, he wanted them to feel a part of the life that I was leading. So he decided to ordain me as a novice so that I would go from white to brown uh, while they were there so that they could be a part of the ceremony, so that they could feel a part of that life. And, you know, he had a lot of time, was very welcoming. And, uh, but anyway, I remember uh, my father, who was very connected to the current events and to affairs of the world, and uh, quite uh, passionately involved in uh, politics and very uh, uh, compassionately minded and liberally minded, but he was, was concerned about our welfare that we're, you know, and uh, so I remember him asking Ajahn Chah, what about all these communist guerrillas in this, because <coughs> in this area, do you think it's safe? How do you feel about that? And uh, Ajahn Chah gave a uh, beautiful talk, I don't remember the, all the details of it, but saying, yes, it's true that there's this activity and there's this violence. But he said the, the guerrillas, and nowadays he might have used the word the terrorists. Like he was saying, the ones you need to be most concerned about are the ones that are in our own heart. That through not attending to what moves through the heart, we can be terrorized, we can, well, or these guerrillas can rob us of well-being, can sabotage us, can create all sorts of, suf create all sorts of suffering for ourselves, for our family, for our community. And he gave this uh, beautiful talk about tending to and reading the Book of the Heart. This was a big, a big thing for Ajahn Chah. 
And, and this is uh, what we've been doing today and on these days is uh, what Ajahn Chah would call reading the Book of the Heart. He said it's the most important book. We can write uh, essays and on emptiness or on desire, aversion, laziness, lethargy, dullness, agitation, anxiety, restlessness, doubt. But he would say it's a very, very different thing. Do we really read the Book of the Heart? Do we, do we know what it's like? what desire is like, or are we so busy being hijacked by it, shaped by it? So we're not studying it. Desire is pointing to what I need. Over there. Not really reading, studying, getting to know aversion. Aversion is pointing somewhere else. It's not pointing to itself. It's saying, that sensation, that situation, that person, that sound, this life. But to, to, and, and in this, the pasana, this pasana looking, the looking into. Looking into the, the states, the moods, the sensations that, that, that arise for their own sake, not just being interested to get somewhere else. We've been building a foundation these first few days of uh, what I call cultivating primary relationship. You know, we might wish wouldn't it be nice if the lion laid down with the lamb and all beings were at peace? It would be nice, and it's a beautiful thought. But we uh, get so annoyed with our neighbor and we can't stand the sensation in our back and, and we don't want to feel our body. <coughs> it's one thing to have, you know, this, this aspiration, but primary relationship is learning, learning how to cultivate relationship, how to connect. That's the essence of mindfulness, is relationship. Being mindful of connecting body, fundamental relation. How to relate to the body. <coughs> and also how to help it to recognize what feeds it. Oh, breath is feeding the body. Water, food, long breath, short breath. Attention. Well, what happens when attention connects with something? Noticing with the, when, what happens when the attention is averse. All the tension. When the attention is averse, it just creates all this stress. When the attention is greedy, stress. What happens when the attention is not so much 
distressed or longing, but is non-judgmental, kind, patient, friendly, relaxed, receptive, inquiring. Moments of learning how to relate to body, to this moment, to seeing, to hearing, to smelling, <coughs> tasting, sensing. Learning to have a relationship with thinking rather than writing, writing big, big essays. Learning even how to relate to a, a thought and notice how it can direct attention. Even if we get tyrannized by our thoughts for hours, even to have minutes, seconds, of realizing we can use a thought to direct the attention. That's a training, a relation, cultivating how to relate to thought in a skillful way, to relate to the body. And part of reading the Book of the Heart, where does the body appear? In the book of the heart. The body appears in awareness. Not the conceptual body of, well, I've got a good one, I've got a bad one. I've got a beautiful one, I've got an ugly one, I've got the best one, I've got the worst. God, how did I get dealt this? But the, the, the body that we immediately connect with, the heaviness, the lightness, the movement, the swelling, the subsiding, the heat, the cool, the liquid. By having those moments of uh, deepening our capacity to be real for moments, to be really in touch with how it is. And then we've been, you know, today Tanisha opened up the, the contemplation of, of what interferes with our being profoundly or truly here. The, 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 that which keeps us from getting gathered, still, composed, unified, what pulls us, the desire, the aversion, the heaviness, the dullness, the anxiety, what the fretting, the not really being able to, to settle. the endless tangle of but should I, I'm not sure, but you know, if that happens, what then will I, I'm not in the doubt. And these, these uh, yes, they're hindrances when, when we don't really attend to them, when we don't really uh, study them, but one thing I, I really appreciate, yes, they can, yes, they can be terrorists or guerrillas when we don't really understand them, when we don't contemplate them. But one thing that Ajahn Chah made very clear uh, is, is that if we read the Book of the Heart, then what was a, something that could cause harm 
something that could really hinder and interfere becomes a teacher. And just, just imagine, let's say there is someone that is our teacher, someone we respect and revere, because we can learn from that person in some skill, in some activity, in some spiritual pursuit. And so just, just imagining that, uh, that some of the states that we might call negative, that, that, that sweep us away, you know, what would it really mean to, to have a moment of, oh, this is teaching me, to my teacher? To, t- to allow some of that composure. So for a, a, a moment, when we're not, when we say we are being with the sitting and the walking, and then we're noticing that we're being pulled or pushed, or, then we can consciously still use that quality of presence, but direct it right to that particular state. get to know it. Usually desire wants us to go somewhere, to do something. Usually aversion wants us to really be preoccupied with getting rid of something. What, what if we are uh, <coughs> practice being still with? Is it possible? Being still with. Sometimes when we take the chance, take the opportunity just to receive those uh, states to contemplate it, you know, then they disappear. God, where to go? Which is important to notice. It seems so real now; it's gone. And there is a time sometimes of not having to follow everything. We did practice these first few days of really just saying, "Not now." just so we're not automatically just getting swept by things. We can practice saying not now and returning. And sometimes that's enough, but sometimes something more powerfully pulls us. And then it really is uh, useful to be able to, to really study, inquire, listen into, rather than necessarily analyze and write essays about, but to really know what it's like to be with aversion, or desire, or doubt. Sometimes we can even bring more of it on if we want to. Especially if it's something we're so heavy about. Notice what tends to happen when there's these patterns is getting shaped by it, contracted around some thought, but no, 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 I really need to should I do this and which would be that I'm not really sure if I'm doing it right and you know I wish there was more instruction I mean Kitty Song Denise and Jennifer I mean bless their hearts but really you know they're, they're not fully enlightened and I just don't know how I'm going to figure it out and then sometimes just to keep encouraging the doubts can we notice can we notice that a doubt is changing? That it's welling up and subsiding?
can we notice it's uncertain? One of Ajahn Chah's favorite expressions was my ne. It means my, means not ne. It means it's not certain. We're in a moment and we think this is bad. He would train himself to go my ne. No, 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 you don't understand. This is really bad. It's a bad state. My ne. That phrase would encourage to hold lightly and stay with it and then watch it shift and change. No, oh, this is really fantastic, it's great, this insight, it's an awesome minor. Not certain, it's not a judgment, but to just hold lightly, to, to rather than read and believe some opinion about something, minor is, a, is an, an expression, a not certain. The Buddha might have just said anicca, it's not certain, not permanent. But it's a way of helping us look freshly. So reading the book of the heart, reading the book of the body-mind that all appears in the heart, it's about learning to remain present. So anyway, all those years, uh, over the years, my mother and father really treasured the time in the Orient with Ajahn Chah. They didn't get his name exactly right. Sometimes they would call him the Agan, the Agan Chah. But uh, they, they couldn't help but realize something important was going on in that monastery. They still didn't approve for some years. Well, they didn't understand, but they knew that it was a real, a real play, a, a real place of or they, they, they sensed the some of the authentic human qualities, praiseworthy qualities, venerable qualities the people I was with and of the teacher. And then over the years they really, they both really became to appreciate the, uh, my father really appreciated that we learned how to be grateful and content with a little. He commented to me, for some people, nothing's ever enough. They always have to have more, 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 more. And he really appreciated this training and learning to appreciate and be content with a little. And on this uh, last uh, day or so, or maybe hours of my dad's life, I'm uh, really grateful for the incredible blessings he gave to Tanisha and me and, and this place, though he never got here, though they looked at pictures. Their, their generosity helped this place happen.
and I was uh, very fortunate in the last few years, like th this uh, past year, last year I probably spent six months just being with my dad, helping him, and being with this process of this body, which we take so much to be me and mine, breaking down, the skin breaking down, the joints breaking down, the functions breaking down. And it was uh, quite amazing that my, my father managed through this process to have such clarity of mind. We'd read the paper every day, do the puzzles, and, but had to be patient with a body that was very, very uncomfortable. He could barely move the last few years. But it was really uh, beautiful to, to notice that even in that uh, state, he still... He got very sweet, very generous, and blessed, blessed everyone. And sometimes in the, in the middle of the night when he could, he would read the paper and the obituaries every day, and of course he had outlived almost everybody, mm -hmm. all the people he knew. He would see, and it took, who had died, and it would take great effort, but he would write these little condolence letters. And then when he couldn't write, his handwriting was so bad, then I would copy it out for him so that he could send it. To the, to the people left behind. So, um, so I'll offer these uh, few words of uh, Dharma on this uh, evening. And I hope that we remember the reading of the Book of the Heart and that the more dangerous than the dangers out there are uh, when we don't attend to the moods, the opinions, the formations, which you can give them negative, you can call them afflictions, you can call them um, hindrances. But Ajahn Chah, he said, don't be in too big a hurry to get rid of your afflictions. You think, why? Well, was he a masochist? Because then we start getting into denial. I'm not angry. And then we project it out on everybody else. Look at all those emotional people out there, the turkeys, they don't know anything. Don't be in too big a hurry. He didn't say get hijacked by it. Yes, if we don't attend to it, it can cause, can rob us and cause all kind of havoc. But it's not a question of getting rid of. What he's calling reading the book is getting to know. understanding and even if there's agitation, anxiety, doubt happening, yes if we're totally shaped by it and lost by it that, that's painful but if we're noticing that, reflecting on that, that suffering becomes a noble truth as we will look in the next few days we start to see it change, it teaches us about the nature of things. And as we remember what I said on the, I think on the first night, that Vimuti Sarasa Bhagama, even those states themselves, have as their core freedom. That even when these so-called hindrances or things when we understand them, even when they're there, know them in their nature, they come, they go. When we're not grasping and rejecting them, we realize the 
luminous, ever-present, bright, still, awareness, the space within which it all happens. So I offer these words of uh, our contemplation and may the goodness of our practice bless this being we call ourselves and our families, ancestors, loved ones, children, grandchildren, each other, this earth, those near and far. And may my uh, father finally get to see Dharmagiri and may he uh, uh, just let go peacefully. He's lived an awesome life, set a beautiful example of nobility, service, generosity, and wisdom. May all beings be touched by our efforts. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.